Okay, we are in chapter 22. Uh, who can uh, share something? And if you have a short comment, uh, am I not on? Is that better? Okay, sorry about that. Uh, who can share something? If it's something short, just shout it out. If it's something longer, we'll get you a microphone. And um, something from last week that we talked about, a lesson that we learned, an application we made, an event that transpired, basically prove you were listening last week. Sin has consequences. That, And I'm glad that Leanne mentioned that because that has been instrumental to virtually every uh, session that we have been engaged in in our study of 2 Samuel. And that is there are always consequences to sin. There, and sometimes those consequences take uh, a generation or two to kick in. Uh, or to really show up. Um, and we've seen that in the life of David as well as his children. And now all the ugliness that happened with um, uh, Absalom as we talked about two weeks ago. Uh, other, other things we learned last week or things that we kind of walked away with. One more either fact or... Okay, so the men of Saul's house were uh, put to death by hanging as payment or retribution for what we had seen uh, in the avenging of the Gibeonites. That was in chapter 21. Very good. So there's a couple things we talked about. Chapter 22 is uh, relatively lengthy. Uh, if you were to summarize chapter 22 in... Ten words or less, what would you say it's about? Yes, Sam. In a few places, David exuded, exuded, yeah, exuded oh, his word. confidence in God. Exudes his confidence in God. I like that. Other ways of kind of uh, summarizing what's going to happen in the lengthy 22nd chapter. It's a psalm of David. You know, usually when we think of David's psalms, we think immediately of the book of psalms and nothing wrong with doing so. They are very comforting, very powerful, very applicable. But we're going to look at a couple of different places uh, tonight. And then, Lord willing, next week we will get into First uh, Chronicles 28 or 29 where we're going to see it happen again in shorter form. Um, okay. Let's start in chapter 22, um, and the occasion, verse 1, is on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so when you look at the 22nd chapter, what we have here is what I've called a psalm of praise and a psalm of thanksgiving. Um, what I wanted to do is kind of briefly outline the first half, um, particularly uh, verses 2 through 3, and then we'll drop down from there. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence." One of the things that struck me is all the different terms that David employs to describe the Lord. 
He describes him. Uh, what, what are those different terms? Let's list three or four of them just by looking at that text. Rock, fortress, deliverer, shield, horn, tower, depending on the version from which you're reading. So a lot of different words. Is there something that we can learn from that? Well, and obviously there is, but what can we learn from that? I wouldn't ask the question if there wasn't, right? Very good. God, Leanne said God is always there even when we forget about it or don't think he's there or think he has maybe forgotten us. That has never transpired. It will never transpire where we go to God in prayer as a faithful child of his. And he says, I'm, I, I didn't, didn't see you there, child. No, that's not the way it works with our father. Luke 15 is a powerful picture of the father who anxiously awaits the return of his prodigal child. Very good. Um, what else do we learn from this? Just these two verses. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul said that by way of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, right? Am I right? Okay. I thought maybe I had, had a moment there. Um, but good. <laughs> Romans 8 something, right? 31, I think. Romans 8 something. Bruce, mark that down. Okay. Um, one of the other things that I thought of here is we can be very casual in our prayer life. And it's not that we have to be formal with our God. It's not that we have to be fancy with our words. But there's nothing wrong with calling upon God in prayer and saying, God, you are my father. You are my rock. You are my fortress. You are my shield. And use all the different terms that David uses here to describe God. God deserves that praise. And that's good for us to kind of uh, manifest that in the way that we share with God how much we exude his praise, to use the phrase that uh, Sam used a minute or so ago. So that was kind of where I was going with that. I want to drop down to verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and I cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. This reminds me of what Leanne was talking about just a second or so ago. Then uh, read verses 8 through 11. And what I'm looking here is this idea of um, God as a person. The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. Um, verse 11, he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He rode upon a cherub and flew. By the way, what is a cherub? Heavenly being, a particular type of angel. Uh, going back to January or February in our study of angels, we talked about there are two classifications of, of angels that are known, that are specified, one being a seraph or seraphim being the plural, and the other being the cherub or cherubim being the, the plural. Um, but I like this idea, not just because I wrote it, not in write this, but, but I wrote that point. Think about God is spirit. He's not a human being. 
who he doesn't have eyes and nostrils and he doesn't have feet and he doesn't have hands in the way that we have them. But yet that's the way that David kind of visualizes the Lord. And apparently there's nothing wrong with doing so because God doesn't have literal ears, but I'm sure glad that God's ears are attentive to our cries is the point that I guess I'm trying to make here. Verses 12 through 20, we won't read all of that. But where does the focus, as you glance from 12 down through about verse 20, uh, this is guess what I'm thinking or looking for. I'm looking for a particular pronoun or a particular uh, noun. Uh, What's the focus in 12 through 20? The power and strength of who? Of God, absolutely. Look at all the he's, look at the Lord's, look at the himself, look at thy, depending on the version from which you're reading. Uh, Verse 17 and 18 really jumped out to me. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me, they comforted me, they they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Uh, if you like underlining things or memorizing parts of verses, the Lord is my support. Uh, we have the church to support us. We have our family to support us. We have our friends to support us. That all pales in comparison to who that supports us, and that's God. God is our, is our number one support. And uh, we'll get to this in our applications, but I'll go ahead and give it away now. Spoiler alert. And that is one of our big takeaways tonight is that the relationship that we have with God has to be more important than any relationship that we would otherwise have. More important than husband and wife, more important than parent child, more important than your best friend is God. That relationship matters the absolute most because he's the rock, he's the fortress, he's the horn, he's the tower, he's all those things. That's how impressive our God is. Uh, We sing a song. It's a relatively newish song, I think. uh, Behold our God. And it's like pulling back the curtain saying, behold, look at our God. He is powerful. He is great. Any comments on the first 20 verses? And I'm not going to go through all the psalm because we won't have the time to do so. But Leanne right there, uh, Brother Cameron. Um, this goes against um, everything that the world teaches is okay. You see those preachers on TV and they're after money. You see people that use God for money, for fame, mm-hmm. for fortune, for glory. And you're thinking, oh, they're doing such a good thing. Mm-hmm. No, they're not. Um, yeah. Because they, uh, they're teaching people false doctrine Correct. through a worldly thing. Right. And um, so... But God's not that way. When his child is hurt, that offends him so badly. Very good. That's why we got to be careful as Christians not to speak badly about each other or anything good. like that. Because good application. God will have justice for right. you. Because as we began tonight, God knows all things. He knows all of our cries, but he also knows the things that we think or say about others as well. Uh, Let's go to verses 22 through 25, and I want to just ask the question, what's the significance of these uh, four verses? 22, I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. 
Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to me being clean in his eyes or uh, my clean hands, some versions would say. Maybe this is, again, guess what I'm thinking. But these four verses really jumped out to me for a reason. Do they jump out to you for any reason? I think, I think Miss Janita is on the same track that I'm on. We may not be on the same right track, but we're on the right, same track. Right? Uh, she said, when God forgives, he forgets. Their sins I will remember no more. That's one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. Yeah, Sam, or the Old Testament, actually, too. I was saying in 1 Peter 3, mm-hmm. for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. So we know that God blesses the righteous, but he also... As, as Peter finishes there from uh, the Old Testament, his face is against those who do evil. Yep. That was First Peter 3, verses 10 through around 12. Thank you, Cameron. Um, absolutely. Um, when David says, I was blameless before God, I was clean in his eyes, that I exacted righteousness in my life, that I have not wickedly departed from my God. What do we know about David at this point? We know that he's made some really significant errors, right? Yet he is still going back to where we started. And now as we kind of wrap up this sub point, God's forgiven him. And Miss Linda here in the front, uh, Cameron. That's powerful, it seems to me, that a person can say, I'm blameless before God, not because of my own righteousness. And that's not what David is arguing here, but because of God's incredible grace. Yeah, Miss Linda? Well, I have a question. Um, Chronology-wise, would this, I mean, going back to verse 1, wouldn't this psalm maybe have been written pre-Bathsheba and Uriah and all of those things? I don't know. How's that? Uh, Do we we know, and and, and honestly, I don't know. Uh, I thought that as well. Brother Bruce here, Cameron. Over to your left. Yeah. Um, I was wondering the same thing here. And you have uh, certain psalms that we know were written on the occasion of dot, dot, dot. And this one may be a little bit more ambiguous. I don't know. Bruce may have the answer. Isn't it a great reason to rejoice every single day to know 
Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, other thoughts before we go into the last part? We're just going to look at a couple things here in the last part of the verse 34. There's a lot of things that are very um, straightforward. But what does verse 34 mean for someone who's not a deerologist? Verse 34 says in the New King James, He makes my feet like the feet of deer. Um, and sets me on the high places. What's that mean for someone who's like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Swift, sure, secure. There are three S's there for you. Um, you know, the idea of confidence. Um, and we see that deer, is, the concept of deer is a favorite of David's, right? Throughout his writings. Yeah, Okay. And the last thing, and this is more, we can discuss this, but just maybe take 10 seconds just to think about this. Ponder your own prayer life in, in our prayer lives in light of this song, in light of this psalm. In many ways, it goes back to where we began. We can incorporate in our private prayers and in our public prayers, not in a boastful way of trying to say, look at me how well I pray, but by saying, God, you are the rock. You are the king. You are holy. You are awesome. You are one. We can do all that and make our prayers maybe a little bit more meaningful. Um, I've always been one. To, uh, I've never, I've never. I don't know if I've ever actually told someone that was a good prayer. I've always, I always say I appreciate that prayer, and the reason is because I'm not the one that judge your heart in the way that you are praying, and say that was a good prayer. Check mark. But, you're, but I appreciate the prayer. I appreciate the words you said is, you know, because we, we, whether someone's eloquent or not is indifferent. Speaking of eloquence, stay tuned. A week and a half from now, we're going to talk about eloquence and someone who wasn't very eloquent when he gave some reasons or excuses. Okay. Anything else on chapter 22? Yes, Brother John. Microphone's on the way. Just a couple of things that stand out to me. Verse 4, talking about the Lord is worthy to be praised. I think we can all testify to that fact. Mm -hmm. But also I noticed how many times the word shield is used. I didn't count them, but it's several times in this psalm that shield is used. reminded me of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6 about putting on the whole armor of God. You remember what he said about this shield of faith? able to quench all the, uh, uh, what is it, like mm -hmm. flaming missiles of the evil one. Right. And, of course, that faith is faith in God. He becomes a shield for us, yeah. a protection. Very good. Excellent thoughts. And we could easily spend 45 minutes just talking about this, this text here. One other little thing here. I challenge you to read verse 47 and not sing in your head. Look at verse 47 real quickly. You're all singing now in your head, aren't you? Okay, good. All right. Chapter 23. <laughs> well, the song was longer than that, but yeah. Okay. Second uh, Samuel chapter 23 is our focus for the next few moments. Um, 
starts with, in my Bible, I have a heading called David's Last Words or the Last Words of David. In fact, verse 1 says, these are the last words of David. We are drawing to the close of David's life, even though we won't actually get to the end of David's life for a couple more weeks. Next week, um, Caleb's going to be teaching next week, and he's going to cover eight chapters in First Chronicles. So it's going to be great. Uh, and then we're going to come back and cover Second Kings 1 and 2, and then we're going to review and wrap up all that kind of good stuff. Um, I just, without reading those seven verses here, you can kind of scan through them, or maybe you've read through them earlier today or, or this week and preparing for um, tonight. I just thought about this as kind of a, a discussion point. What are some key things that we learn about the relationship that exists between us and God based on just these seven verses? Now, you can say, well, I want to use the previous 50 verses. That's, that's fine. You can go and do that. But just these seven verses, um, what do you learn about our relationship with God? Very personal. God takes it personally. And uh, David and I were studying today with someone, and we were talking about the billions and billions and billions and billions of people that are not only on the earth now, there's eight or so of them, of us, uh, and now, and I don't know how many billion have ever lived. I mean, the Lord knows. Uh, and you could probably do a calculator estimate on, on, on Google. Uh, but God has the ability to have a personal relationship with every single one of those people. He knows every person intimately, better than sometimes we know ourselves. And certainly better than our friends would know us, whatever. So that's a very good point that Leanne makes there. What else do we learn from these seven verses here? I was, I was uh, while you're thinking, but the, uh, one of the reasons that I, I thought about this, I love verse 4. He should be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth, by clear shining after rain. Um, I just, just beautiful language to me. And I think it attests to what Leanne was saying there. Anything else? Briefly or not so briefly? Gentle. God is very gentle. That's the that's the side that it's kind of like when you correct your oh sorry it's kind of like when you correct your, a little child that doesn't yes. know what they're saying or doing you you tell them you know we don't talk that way or we don't say that that's right. a bad thing right that's kind of what God does yeah so we serve a very gentle loving long suffering God we serve a very fearful. Uh, the King James uses the word awful God. And that doesn't mean that he's awful bad. It just means that he is filled with all. Uh, ironically, we call him awesome instead of awful. Full of all versus some of all. But ironic how those words have gotten changed through the years. But he is an awesome and awful God. And you understand what I mean by that. Uh, let's move on in chapter 23. Uh, verses 8 through 39 is a... A brief biographical sketch of some of the mighty men uh, of David. And we're not going to go through and read all of those. However, uh, my question is, is this more than just a list of names? And the answer is obvious. 
Of course it's more. God doesn't waste time with just filling up text um, and moving his word count higher up. What's the point of these 32 verses or 31 verses, whatever they are? What's the point behind it? Or a point? Excellent. So David Job, the first part, what he said there, in case you didn't hear, the Lord was always the one giving them the, the victory. And I think that's where you're going with that. And that, that's huge. So these are mighty men. And we can be mighty men and mighty women. But we will be absolutely nothing without God. That changes absolutely everything. Very good. Also attests to the fact that how God has blessed David uh, with these men who are going to help him, uh, like we talked about last week and the week before, unify the empire, bring it together, uh, not have division. Because there were lots of various places where it looked like it was going to fall apart, and they came back together. And ultimately, as we develop the story of the divided kingdom, we see where it, well, it is divided. Um, one little thing here I wanted to talk about is verse 13 through 17. Someone for me describe what I've called the drink of water incident. Who wants to? I think, well, let's, let's just read the, the verses, then we'll talk about it for uh, 60 seconds or so. Three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped at the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. He said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. Why? Why is that in the text? I think there's a, I think there's a couple reasons. But who wants to um, venture something? Brother Allen is going to take the challenge. Microphone's on the way. Well, for one, that story tells us, gives us more insight in the character of David and, and mm-hmm. him, his interpretation of what he should do and the appreciation he should show. But to, to your first question, why, why talk about these men? Mm-hmm. You know, David's life is filled with people being on his side and then leaving him and then ratting him out to Saul. or And yet he had these 37 guys that stayed with him. And there is some, there's some reward in that, I think, for the Holy Spirit to tell us. These men stayed loyal to God's anointed king. And they were willing to do incredible things for him. And God empowered them to do incredible things for him. And so I think this is one instance just to show those who are truly loyal to the anointed... They'll go to these lengths, and they'll have these kind of victories because of God. Very good. Excellent. Anything else? Did anybody else think of a a particular New Testament passage? Um, We're playing a lot of guess what I'm thinking tonight. 
Um, starts with just. We even sing it sometimes. I, that's, that's what I was thinking of. I was thinking of Jesus, just a cup of cold water in my name. It's the small things that you can do. And I just thought about this. And I wonder if Jesus, well, Jesus knew all things, knows all things. Certainly he knew about this event, um, you know, 10 decades or 10 centuries before or whatever the case. But just thought that was neat. But I love the, the, everything that Alan said, but particularly the last part, the application for us is we will go to the ends of the earth for the king. Well, at least we should be willing to. We should be willing to die for him because he died for us. Uh, Jesus would teach that no one has greater love than to lay down his life for one of his friends. We have no better friend except Jesus. And if it requires my life, if it requires everything, I'm willing to do that because he's redeemed me. He, he bought me back. He, he canceled. He, he made it so that I don't have to pay that horrible death that he endured for me. All that kind of good stuff. All right. All right, let's go ahead in our final uh, 10 or 12 minutes here and look at chapter 24. Chapter 24 is, again, a chapter that you don't want to read because we don't like... Yes, Brother John. Yes, uh, Cameron, Brother John, right up front there. Sure, absolutely. One last thing about chapter 23. Did you notice who the last one of the mighty men were? Yep. Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite. He's listed, isn't he? So David, if this is the same Uriah had murdered one of his most faithful subjects. Yeah, very good. Humbling, sobering, a lot of words. All right, let's go ahead and uh, progress to 24. We'll spend uh, our last 12 minutes here. Um, There's a lot of ways to study 24, uh, a lot of ways to study the first thing. Um, I want to talk about verse 1. And we could spend 10 minutes here. We'll spend a couple minutes here. Uh, Be prepared to defend or explain. I missed a quote there. Uh, Verse 1. Again, this is 2 Samuel 24. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now, if you've not read this yet, and that's okay, um, but, again, we're going to give it away. This is a grievous error on the part of David. Why? We'll talk about either in two weeks or we'll talk about in the next eight or nine minutes, depending on if we get to it. But So David's going to do something wrong. We all agree to that. The Lord agrees to that. Uh, and David agrees to that. Explain or defend verse 1. In your own words. And I'll go ahead and put up on the screen that First Chronicles 21 seems to me, it, well, not seems, it, it does, it helps. It helps immensely. But where am I going here? Where I'm going is someone could say, how unfair of the Lord that he moved David and caused David to do something that was sin. That's, that's what you get into is with someone reading this in a very literal way or someone who doesn't have a lot of biblical um, um, experience may say, God made David sin. So how do we explain this? 
Okay, we know that God never makes anyone sin. We know that God does not tempt, nor can he be tempted, as is taught in Scripture. Maybe I, need, maybe I, I, should, I should have emailed this out last week and let you think about it for a week. Because it, it's, it's okay to, to ponder and say, I want to make, make sure I explain this correctly. Because this is, this is serious. Because you could have someone walk away with a serious misunderstanding of what the Scriptures are teaching here. Brother Sam, all the way up in front, Cameron, thank you. People can react differently to the hearing of the scriptures, a, a sermon, whatever. I mean, take, for instance, Stephen. How did the people react to him? Mm-hmm. They were mad. They stoned him. And on the other hand, you look at Peter and the others teaching and they said basically the same thing, convicted them. However, several thousand people on the day of Pentecost, they reacted totally differently. Mm-hmm. So the same word that could harden your heart could also melt your heart. just depends on what kind of heart you have. Interesting. So that's it could be some of this. Yeah, I think that's definitely something to be included in this discussion is the the receptiveness of the heart at, at, at issue here. Other thoughts? What we may do is we uh, I don't... Yeah, Brother Danny. I believe First Chronicles 21 indicates that it was the he there is Satan that does the tempting. How many people... Some, some of you have the word Satan in verse 1 of chapter 21. Some of you have the word adversary. Satan means adversary. Adversary and Satan kind of go together. Um... What I want you to do is, is think about this a little bit because of the seriousness of what we're doing. I think Sam and Mr. Danny have done a good job. Um, take a couple weeks and, and we'll come back and revisit this a little bit. And uh, you can have your report submitted by email by midnight of Tuesday of next week. Um, 100, 150 words or, or more. Not bad. Um, but do, take some time to think about this, ponder this uh, over the next two weeks. We'll come back and deal with it on the uh, 21st of September, Lord willing. Let's go ahead here in, our, in the course of our final five or six minutes here. Um, what I call the complicated character of Joab. Joab makes an appearance here, does he not? And is Joab a good guy or a bad guy here? seems to be a good guy, or at least is saying something good. Let's see what he says here. The king said to Joab, verse 2, Go therefore throughout all the tribes of Israel. Here's the phrase in the Old Testament. We need to be very familiar with the phrase from Dan to Beersheba. That's from north to south, south to north, east to west. The whole idea was get them all. Uh, And count the people so that I may know the number of the people. I think... The word I there is, is imperative, by the way. He doesn't say that the Lord will know. But the Lord would know that anyway, right? The Lord knows how many hairs are on our head. Um, verse 3, Joab says, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord, talking about you, King David... Why do you, the king, desire this thing? Verse 4, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed, and he went out and did it. 
Thoughts on Joab here? Joab is a is a is a complex character. Miss Linda here, uh, Cameron, because we talk about Joab a lot and not in glowing terms thus far. Well, you were talking good guy or bad guy, and he has two sides here. It seems to me, the first one is, okay, I really don't want to do this job mm-hmm. because this is a lot of work. Hmm. But the second one is, okay, well, I mean, I'll I'll do what you want, but why do you need this information? I mean, you know, the people, they're going to live and die and have more as he's he's out counting. Yeah. Interesting. Good. Yeah, they they don't have a census uh, bureau with uh, door-to-door census takers. Well, they may have had door-to-door census takers. Uh, but uh, it reminds me of some of the Three Stooges. <laughs> the senseless takers. But they didn't have the technology that we have today to be able to do this. This was going to be a task. And this was going to take some time, absolutely. So here's our final question, and we're going to run out of time here. But what's the problem? Why is there a problem? And, and if you read through everything, you, you get what's... But pretend someone looks at this and says, I don't see what the big deal is. So he wants to know what the population is. Every government uh, counts as people. What, what's the problem? Okay, so Miss Janita was looking over my shoulder as I was finishing my uh, uh, slides today. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 1. She said, God hadn't told him, and had God, take that away, <laughs> had God told them, the people at various points, I want them numbered? Sure, he wrote a whole book called Numbers. So go back to the book of Numbers, and let's just read just the first two verses. And uh, Brother David Delt did a good job of taking us through Numbers recently. Uh Chapter 1, first two verses here. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they come out of Egypt, saying, Take a census, count the people of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, their fathers' houses, according to the number of the names, every male individually from 20 years old and above who are able to go to war in Israel. So there was a particular purpose behind this. Um, there's another couple of passages that, that I came across that I want to look at here real quickly here, and we'll run out of time. One of those is in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 26 does not talk about numbering the people or not numbering the people. So you're not going to find the word census or counting the people. But you do find something that I think sheds some light on what Miss Janita pointed out here. Uh, verse 3, this is Leviticus 26. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, I'll give you rain Produce, trees, fruit, all kinds of good stuff is going to happen. Uh, Verse 7, you will chase your enemies. They shall fall by the sword before you. And then notice verse 8. And this is where I was going with why I brought this passage out. Verse 8 says, five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Why did I put Leviticus 26 verse 8 up there? Right. So what is probably in one five-letter word that starts with a P, what is likely the issue in David's heart? 
pride, right? And at the very center of pride is that really ugly letter I. And pride is all about I and me and my. And that seems to be what's going on here. And David needed to go back and seemingly read Leviticus 26 where God said, I, I, with, with 100 people, with 500 people, with 10 people, I can make great things happen and I can take your enemies and I can destroy them. And you don't need to get caught up in thinking, look how many people I have on my side. Uh, Leanne. I think that goes back to your first verse. Um, David angered the Lord because he let pride come into his heart. He was going to do what he wanted to do, even though he Mm -hmm. knew it wasn't what God wanted him to do. See, that's where sin starts. Sin says, oh, it's not that bad. You know, you can do it. It's all about me, myself, and I. Yeah. Excellent. And I, I, I like that concept of the progression of sin. I don't like the concept, but I like the concept in terms of understanding it because that's the way it works. It starts out, oh, not that big of a deal, but then develops into something much more important uh, or much more tragic sometimes it could be in terms of uh, the way you look at it. Anything else before we wrap up? Brother John here. In the First Chronicles 21, we see that even Joab knew that the Lord was not going to be happy with mm-hmm. that. It reminded me of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he got lifted up with pride. Right. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, became like a wild animal with claws. And talk about, I, I, I talk about things that scared me as a kid. The story of Nebuchadnezzar scared me as a kid. I was traumatized as a child with these stories. All right, we'll stop there.